the way we view food is as a sum of its nutrients. Like we break it down to viewing it as how much protein, how much vitamins and minerals, how much fat, it's fiber, rather than food as food. Humans, we like to categorize things. We like to put things in nice little neat, neat boxes. Mm. And here we've got one box with ultra processed food written on it and a rubber stamp, bad, written on top of that. And that's just bad science. Hey guys, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Catch Ups in My Kitchen with me, Georgia Simmons, host of the podcast. This week we have a returning guest, which is very exciting. This time last year, James Collier came on the podcast and he is back in my kitchen to share more of his wealth of knowledge on all things nutrition. But this time we are going at it from a different angle. This time we are going to focus on why the health and nutrition market and industry is so confusing. James and I touch on ultra-processed foods, we talk about influencers, and we also touch on James's book, which is coming out very, very soon. In this episode, James highlights how it can be challenging as someone who has got so much knowledge to get the right information across on social media without referencing clickbait sentences or phrases or over-dramatizing, which then comes across as misleading. James also shares his really, really frustrating story about trying to get a publisher for his book. This is a super interesting episode about misinformation in the industry and trying to navigate through the noise and what to believe, what not to believe, and how as consumers it can be really, really tough. But we try and kind of navigate through this in this episode and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So please, please enjoy and as always, have a lovely, lovely rest of your day. James, welcome back to my kitchen. It's been one year since you were here last and I'm really looking forward to kind of deep diving into all things nutrition in more detail. But how are you? I'm great, Georgia. Great to be back. Um, yeah, it's been a year. I know, it's gone quite Although quickly. we have seen each other since. We have, we yeah. have, but it has gone really quickly. So for those of you who didn't listen the first time, do you mind giving a quick elevator pitch? Who you are and what you do? My name is James Collier. I'm your co-founder and a registered nutritionist. Um, so I co-founded Huel eight years ago with Julian Hearn and for those of you who don't know who Huel is, what Huel is, we make nutritionally complete, um, convenient, affordable food, um, a range of products which we, we spoke about in the last episode so might, you know, if people want to know a bit more about that side of things might be useful for them to, to tune back into your one from last, mm. last October. Uh, and yeah, and I'm also a registered nutritionist, former NHS dietitian also worked in the fitness and bodybuilding world for a lot of years. Amazing. So as always, we have our quick fire round to start things off. So sweet or savoury? Depends what mood I'm in. Yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah. I don't know what I'd say to that. I think I'd probably say savoury, but it's a difficult savory one. Savoury because I'm sweet enough. <laughs> Good one. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. Go to cuisine. Cuisine's maybe a strong word, but I do like good old British fish and chips. Fish and chips, good one. Cook in or eat out? Depends on the mood. I like to eat out, and I'm very fortunate I get to eat out quite a bit, mm. sometimes for you know business reasons. But eating in, great as well. My wife's an excellent cook. Yeah, I think both is, both is important to do a bit of both. And what is your favourite delivery? I don't have delivery, well... 
Where okay, favourite takeaway? Again, depends what mood I'm in. Probably fish and chips. Yeah, easy. To, but they're not delivered. You have to go and pick them up yourself. Yeah, true. <laughs> so I want to kind of kick things off with talking about a really interesting, I think it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment, which is ultra processed foods. So we've kind of spoken about this. We touched on it last time, but I feel like we haven't gone into as much detail as I'd like to go into. So can we discuss how it's actually quite a broad topic and probably wrongly defined. So can you talk about why it's not a very good definition and why you're not really a fan of the word? Great, but before I just get to that bit, I want to give you and people listening in a bit more around the term and so they can Mm -hmm. see why I maybe feel the way I do. Yes. Um, And spoiler, I'm not dead against it. I just got cautions about the term. So ultra-processed food was a word that was, most people believe was first used in 2009 term. It was, um, the guy came up with it was called Carlos Montenero, who's um, a professor from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he came up with a term and later went on with a team of other researchers from Brazil to come up with a NOVA definition. And NOVA is not an acronym, it's a word, although it's all capital letters. I actually don't know the etymology behind the word, but I'm sure it's something in Portuguese or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they came up with a categorization system. Now, I'll, I'll cover that briefly in a moment, but since then, the term has, people started using the term more and more and more to distinguish it from other types of processed food. And I think the last couple of years, but especially the last year, the term ultra-processed food has become almost common parlance. You know, people are using it commonly. And I think that's been platformed, especially in the UK, by the popular book by Chris Van Tullican, Ultra-Processed People, which is a really good book. Very, I highly recommend it. And I'll talk a bit more about why I recommend it, but also why I recommend people read it with an open mind mm-hmm. as part of when I answer the rest of your question in a moment. <clears throat> Excuse my ramble, but no worries. I feel this is quite important because yeah. it's a hot topic and it's a topic that's front of mind for me for a number of reasons. Um, so NOVA, what is NOVA? It's a categorization system. Now, people have rightly thought, a number of scholars in the nutrition world have rightly thought that the way we view food is too reductive. They call the, the term food reductionism. And it was pop- that term food reductionism was popularized by Michael Pollan in the early noughties with his brilliant book in defense of food. Uh, Michael Pollan, people may or may not know him, is a food and plant journalist. Excellent, he's got a show on Netflix, which is about his other sort of way of looking at plants, which is about the drugs from plants. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's called How to Change Your Mind. And there's a couple of books he's written on that side as well. But he's also well known for his food and um, agriculture style books. And I've read several of them and he's brilliant. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says again, but he, he sort of, popularized the term food reductionism but the term well, the first person to originally use it was the Aust- australian food policist called Georgi Scrinis, who came up with the term nutritionism in a famous essay that he wrote in the early noughties called sorry marge marge meaning margarine right because he was against he was putting his sort of point why margarine is not a good thing and what do we mean by food reductionism or nutritionism it's basically where the way we view food is as a sum of its nutrients. Like we break it down to viewing it as how much protein, how much vitamins and minerals, how much fat, it's fiber, rather than food as food. I'm completely on board with this way of looking at it. We should not be taking this nutricentric way of looking at food. 
we should be, food is absolutely greater than the sum of its parts. To, to quote pollen without the absolutely, and that's my bit. Um, if you look at the way, way humans have had Huel in its part of culture for, well, since there's been humans, right? Uh, the way we socialize around food, the way we collectively gain food, and the way there's different cultures revolving, revolving around food, the, the way that certain people from different parts of the world were adapted to tolerate different foods better and adapted to like certain foods better, depending on where they were born. Maybe it's genetic, maybe there's more than that, but the point I'm making is food is certainly greater than the sum of its nutrient parts. And I'm completely on board with this. Mm. And that's where Nova and a bunch of other people that have tried to categorize food differently to how much protein, fats and carbs have come in. There's been several attempts. Scrinis himself um, has an attempt of it in his book, Nutritionism, which I've read. If anyone really, really in the nutrition world absolutely should read that book, anyone else, don't bother. It's a nightmare. It's hard, <laughs> hard work. Okay, but if you really, really want to learn about this and get into the roots of it, then it's a must read, but otherwise I really would leave it. But I would recommend reading Pollen's In Defense of Food. Now, Nova felt the same. Montenero and his team felt the same. We should be looking at food differently. So they thought, well, let's look at it the way it's processed, the way it's prepared, rather than some of its nutrients. So they come up with a four categorization system called NOVA. I'll go through the four categories. Um, category one are but foods that are in, in their very minimally, minimally processed forms. You might obviously cooking is a process. Chopping, preparing, basic things like that um, would be basic processes and that's group one. Group two, spices, salt, maybe some oils, some sugars and things like that. Things that you add to group one to process them in a, in a little bit more, but still minimally processed way, which makes them group three. So this would be things like bread or homemade cakes or homemade biscuits or anything that we've, we've been making for hundreds of years, um, including preserving meat, you know, with um, with salt and other, other things. And then the group four is the ultra processed food which is basically anything that's produced on an industrial scale. So there, there's a few characteristics of ultra-processed food, but the main one being is ultra-processed foods will have at least an ingredient in it that you couldn't find in your average kitchen. Mm -hmm. So it would be made in a factory setting or a laboratory setting or something like that, or more on a commercial scale. It can only be made on an industrial scale. Um, it has to have at least one ingredient there. But also it's the way it's marketed. If it's sold in a way that promotes its sale. So you might have breakfast cereals with the tiger on them, things like that, you know, three little men going snap, crackle and pop on yeah. it. That sort of thing would be would, would make it an ultra processed food as well as that. And also it's hyper palatability. That's seen as a another common uh, attribute, that's the right word, of an ultra processed food. So trying to encourage its, um, it, it encourage people to not just consume it, but to over-consume it. Mm -hmm. So that's what, what Montenero and his team, and that's been furthered in other papers that Montenero has written. There's been a bunch of studies um, about, about ultra-processed food and how they're linked to disease. So I'm on board with all this so far. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. So shall I continue? Yeah, please okay, do. Okay, so I'm really on a ramble here. I'm not no, it's great. Um, now, there's been loads of studies. started with a guy called Kevin Hall from America who did some really cool experiments, which I won't go into the detail of, but basically showing that people were more likely to consume foods that come under this Nova Class 4 
the, the hyperpalatable foods. They're more likely to have a higher calorie intake because of their hyperpalatability and their ease of consumption. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's been a, a load of other studies that have looked at observational studies of people that have higher levels of ultra-processed food uh, in their diet that come into this Nova category before have been associated with higher mortality, morbidity, or worse disease outcome, especially with all the modern like metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, polycystic ovary syndrome. They've even been linked to Alzheimer's in certain cases um, and a bunch of other stuff, some cancers as well, overall cancer, Mm. breast cancer it's been linked to, um, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. And there's been a link, but they are correlative studies. They're not randomized controlled trials because you'd have to do it for a long period and you couldn't do it. I mean, it'd be great fun for those that were on the ultra processed food, junk food diet, but yeah. it's uh, been really hard to control for. I'm sure you, you can understand that. So, mm. But it, it certainly indicates that high consumption of these type of foods are, um, are associated with worse disease outcome. Now there's another characteristic of these foods as well that the Nova category uh, defines is they're also relatively cheap relatively affordable so what you're finding is whilst those in the more in the later to develop nations for want of a better term are only now getting on board with this you you can see cases of obesity rising in brazil hence why the brazilian team noticed it because Mm. it was it was very local to them especially in in the urban places like sao paulo Uh, in india and mexico um in chile for instance which has got the highest growth rate of obesity of any country in the world Mm. or at least did have a few years ago i think it slowed down a bit because they've had some interventions which have been really interesting but um it's all it's it's the cheapness and affordability especially if you the developed nations like the europe and the uk and the usa and canada australia and even japan and south korea to an extent you're finding that um the, the people on the lower incomes in these countries are having a higher proportion of ultra processed foods and that could be due to its being affordability but also their ease of, of making it right you get you can go to a takeaway in fact there's another study that's been done that's shown there's a, a highest number of, t- of takeaway establishments in more deprived areas in the uk oh that's quite interesting that's really interesting i, mean, I can't get the details up but it's it's it wasn't just there is that absolute amount but they, they put more there's more growth of mm. number of establishments in these areas and this is within the uk and i guess it's the demand of the ease isn't it it's the demand of the ease so now you've got millennials and um gen z's and even some people in my my generation gen x's that don't have the cooking skills that our parents or grandparents had because yeah. they've not been taught them whether that's through the you know the parental or through school or a combination or multitude where they've not got the skills yeah so you know maybe they can boil an egg but that's perhaps perhaps the limit and also you've got high number of single um families single parent families and of course you know it's hard yes definitely and i completely agree with all of that and i think that is the when people think of ultra processed foods that's originally where it's come from it's come from those classic cases however there's now a other side to this which i'd love to discuss because there are some good ultra processed foods or foods that are categorized as ultra processed foods and therefore deemed unhealthy but actually they're not so i'd love to touch on that because i think sometimes some products are called ultra processed but actually they're just a processed food but they're not necessarily bad for you so there is definitely a subcategory in this 
hold the category thought. Okay. I let me just say one thing. So I spoke about food reductionism mm-hmm. and how the how people like Scrinis and Montenero and even Pollen um, they they've tried to categorise food in a in a different way. So Nova have come up with this because they claim that the way we look at food is too reductive. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't Nova also reductive? It's just reductive in a different way. We've got four little boxes here that we right. put our food in, in little categories. This is why I said, oh, that's all mm. category. So humans, we like to categorize things. We like to put things in nice little neat, neat boxes. Mm. And here we've got one box with ultra processed food written on it and a rubber stamp, bad, written on top of that. And that's just bad science. Yeah, that's so true. We love to put things in boxes, mm-hmm. put things in categories, yeah. and not everything fits in a box. Least of all, our highly complex food system. Some academics feel that if it comes under the rules of this ultra-processed food, i.e. it contains so-called ultra-processed ingredients, which is basically an ingredient that you would, you'd struggle to, to make at home, like as an extract, maybe another ingredient, then it's not good because it contains this. However, there's so much brilliance that's come on from modern food processing in, and, um, and modern food science. Things like we can improve shelf life of things like bread. Traditionally, just a few decades ago in, in my, my grandmother's era, the the mother of the household would make the bread. Okay, there's all things wrong with that. I mean, we change the <laughs> stereotypes, but it was that way. The mother would make bread in the morning and by the time, by the evening, all that loaf was devoured by a greedy family, right? Not a greedy, yeah. hungry family. And yeah. it was gone. So it didn't have to keep the bread for any longer. Now, everybody wants to go out and work. Great to do things like we're doing now. Listen to this thing, you know, the internet and podcasts and stuff like that. They don't want to be worrying about food. So people have come up with ways of making bread last longer. Now, most loaves that you buy at your supermarket or even from your baker's, a lot of them would, would be so-called ultra-processed because they contain ingredients that improves their palatability, granted, more importantly, their shelf life. So we've got more food, access to a wider range of people to make, make it so we've got a flip that, you know, the term malnutrition, right? People don't tend to think of it as not having enough to eat. Technically, the word malnutrition means improper nutrition. So obesity, for instance, is a form of malnutrition, but we don't think of it that way. Mm. We think of it as undernutrition. Yeah. But now we've got a problem where the type of malnutrition has changed, where it was undernutrition just a few decades ago, even in my uh, my lifetime when I was a kid. People who didn't have enough money were underweight. Now we've got a problem of overnutrition, malnutrition, and the wrong type of nutrition being the problem that's causing disease. Because yes, there are places in the world where there are still famine and people not getting enough, but that's only because of political reasons. Mm. There is absolutely no reason that anyone in the, in the world in this day and age for the last 30 or 40 years can't have access to sufficient calories. Yeah. And, yeah. and, that, and that is because of, of food science that's done that. Mm. So these ingredients are added to foods to make them, for example, to make the shelf life longer. Are these ingredients bad for us? So they're also made for palatability. So, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of ultra-processed foods that we rightly should be limiting how much we eat. Mm. Um, Now, just to say, there's there's so many added ingredients. I would probably say there are a couple out there that we shouldn't, shouldn't be having. 
And this is an example that proponents of Nova and, and Scrinis, for example, have said why we should be cautious. Trans fats. We now, everybody knows. Wherever you sit in the nutrition camp, there's no disagreement on trans fats. Everybody knows they're bad for us. Yeah. And the fact that regulation in the last few years has, has basically all but outlawed ad, added trans fats. You can still get some naturally occurring ones because they occur in nature, but you can't add them to food now. Mm. Um, and um, but when they were when they came out, I think it was the fifties. Um, you know, to make this butter was a, was always a nuisance to spread if you had it from in your fridge yeah. because it ruined your bread. Yeah. Now, now they make you know margarine spreadable from the, the fridge, and this was partly due to hydrogenated oils, trans fats. And they were actually promoted. People said they were good for you. But of course, we know that was really bad advice. Yeah. So it's right that um, nutrition commentators and academics are saying, be cautious because we messed up before with trans fats. Is there anything else? Right. However, food regulation now is a lot more stricter, especially in the EU and UK. I know we're separate from the EU now, but we still follow most of the same rules because we've just not got around to changing them yet. Yeah. Um, America's a little bit more lax, at least on some things, because they've. It's very, very. It's a lot easier to get approval in America due to something called grass. Have you heard of grass? No, I haven't. It's generally regarded as safe. So basically, you you submit a dossier into the um, uh, FDA, Food and Drug. Um, agency administration whatever it's called um and say so this is safe and that's due to workload and costs and everything it's not reviewed in the right way mm. now to get proper approval it's a, it's a long process so there's a lot more to it than that and I, I don't want to get accused of slipping up and getting things wrong but broadly speaking what i've said there is a is broadly what, what happens with grass yeah it's very it's very it's a lot easier to get a food additive approved over there um however if it did turn out to be dangerous and you were putting something into the food system the company would be in a lot of trouble so yeah that's seen as the, as the check so um yeah there probably are to answer your question some ingredients we should be cautious of <clears throat> how's the consumer going to know which ones because the bulk of them malt extract for instance be no problem emulsifiers get a bad rap okay well let's group you know there's tens of different emulsifiers let's all put them in a nice little bucket and say they're all bad for you they're completely different substances <clears throat> Same with sweetness, as we know, sweeteners get a bad rap, the so-called artificial sweeteners. Mm. And there's a lot of misinformation about them. And the, the, anybody who said, oh, sweeteners are bad for you, well, their first thing they should be questioning is, well, there's at least four main sweeteners here and they're all completely unrelated compounds to each other. Surely they can't all be bad for you in the same way. That's the first thing you look at. Right. And that's, you know, sweeteners is, is what they're relative to, for instance. They're there to help people consume less sugar and to make things palatable. And we know the amount of the four main ones, and the four main ones are aspartame, sucralose, ACE-K, and saccharin. Mm -hmm. There are some other ones as well, but um, they're the four um, that, that we find regularly in, in a lot of foods and drinks. Um, they, you know, the, the evidence shows quite clearly that if you consume them in small amounts, there is absolutely no problem. And I know people will be listening to this and going, he's wrong there and showing this bit of information. But if you dissect the quality of the information and you do a rigorous attempt at looking at it and looking at the replication, was it done in mice or rats or was it done in humans? And let's look at all the confounding factors. Show me some evidence that they're, that, that they're dangerous. And people mm. will now be showing me the microbiome. And there is a study that questioned the effects on the microbiome. Yes, look at that study, look at how much how much was consumed and there was also another study that was showed there was no effect on the microbiome and even those that criticize i'm not going to name names 
maybe I should name names. You um, can if you want okay, to. Names, but even Tim Spector, who I respect a lot, but I said, oh, me and him are not on the same page on this issue. Never mm-hmm. met the guy, you know, but he, he, he often says we should be cautious of sweeteners because they can disrupt the microbiome. But then I found a small print on one of his businesses sites that's saying there is no evidence that it does, it, it does mm. um, disrupt the microbiome, but we should be cautious anyway. Right. Okay. And we should be cautious about a lot of things. Is yeah. We could get run over when we cross the road, so maybe we shouldn't cross the road. Yeah. Um, I'm being a bit of a cynic and I don't want to be a dick, but I'm trying to make a point here. Yeah. If you're going to follow this thing called the scientific method, and don't get me wrong, Tim Spector's, if I do a fraction in my life for nutrition, what he's done for nutrition, I will leave the world with a good legacy. You know, yeah. he is brilliant. It's just a number of things. I'm just not on the same page as him. Yeah. But what should consumers do if they, what should they look, like what should they be looking out for? What should they be consuming? Because I think it can be confusing. It's hard, right? It is hard. It is really hard. So we like to put things in boxes. Mm. What what should the box be then? Humans like it. I've just said the nutricentric way doesn't work. And I've also said the ultra processed food Nova category doesn't work for very good reason, which I hope I've articulated clearly and I hope people will challenge mm. because I might be wrong on this stuff. But what's what's the alternative? There, there is only one possible alternative, and that's maybe we should, you know, we we know that having a good amount of protein in a meal is good because protein is more um, is more satiating. It does that broadly in three ways. It, it stimulates a load of. Um, it's more, more, it more stimulates some of the hormones like PYY and GLP-1, which tell us that we're full. So it takes the urgency of eating. It's also got a lower caloric availability. Do you know what that term means? Yeah. Does that mean that it's not having as many calories, but you're... You're not absorbed. So what you put into your mouth, yeah. fewer calories are absorbed. So let's take sugar, mm-hmm. for example. If you have 100 calories worth of sugar, around about 99 calories of those will be absorbed into the, into the blood and go on to, your, to be metabolized in, 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 inside the body. Protein, roughly speaking, depending on the source, depending on the person, um, you have about 100 calories of protein, about 70 of those calories will go on to be used. Right. Starches and fats are somewhere in between. Um, so protein, that's the second reason why protein is more satiating. It takes longer to digest. And yeah. So calorie for calorie, it's, it's more satiating. And also the thermic response of, um, of protein. So every body, every, when you eat food, there's a thermic response, uh, a metabolic cost, so to speak. And the, mm-hmm. the thermic response of protein is slightly higher than the other macronutrients. Mm-hmm. So the, how much protein is in a, in a product is, is useful. Now, I don't want everyone to go away and look at how much grams of protein because that's the nutricentric way that we're trying to move away from. Yeah. But the fiber as well is really useful. Now, there's broadly speaking two, two categories of fiber. Here I go again with the categories. Insoluble and soluble. Insoluble are the things that provide the bulk to your food and good for the digestion, have plenty of fluid with them, act like a sponge and move things along. Again, that helps you feel satiated because it helps you feel full up, especially with fluid. Yeah. And the soluble fiber, these are soluble and the gut microbiome or the good bacteria, they, they digest the soluble fiber um, themselves. They need to consume something. These are prebiotics. Uh, and they produce short-chain fatty acids, which go on to help cognition you know, and a load of other really, really cool stuff that we know a fraction about, but all we do is we know it's really, really cool. Yeah. And um, and again, help, the, uh, help us feel full up. So the messages are, so this is the problem with a lot of ultra-processed foods. They're low in fiber. Yeah. So maybe we need a system, to come back to my idea, that looks at 
how much proteins in a food, how much fibers in a food, the type of fiber, how much of the essential fats and relative to the amount of total fat, um, the, what, what the food sources are, the vitamins and minerals, mm. not everyone, but just is it high in certain vitamins and minerals, certain key ones, as well as how it's been prepared and processed. So I'm not saying do away with it, I'm just saying it's part of the bigger thing. Yeah. But along with all that, if we're going to do this categorizing, putting things in boxes stuff, we need to look at its environmental impact as well. Mm. I know that's something you're interested in yourself. Yeah. Okay, we've, we've got objective markers these days for environmental in- impact. We can look at, you know, CO2E, you know, carbon dioxide equivalents of food. And we can look at land use and biodiversity and stuff like that. And there should be some form of using that. And as well as that, the cultural of food now food culture's fluid there's never there's, there's never been a single single food culture this is, people get this wrong when they go down the chinese takeaway it's <laughs> not really is it you know, <laughs> the chinese takeaway you get in the uk is part of british take yeah. you know, british culture in the in the 2020s yeah um but there is you know we should look at the cultural things now just imagine if you've got a bunch of academics in the room trying to put something like that together that's user-friendly i don't think it's possible it's not possible it's not possible so this is my point that's the only thing that could work and would work, in my opinion. I've, yeah. you know, I've only said this a few times. I've not heard anyone challenge me yet, but then I haven't said it to enough people. But I don't think it's possible. So maybe this highly complex food thing, you know, the, the thing that the Nova and Scrinis and Pollen and all the others that, are, you know, they want to get away from reductive. Well, they've just brought another form of reduc- food reductionism in here. So maybe we just stop this whole trying to be, you know, trying to categorize things and then learn about everything. Yes, do I think we should be considering how food is processed? Absolutely. Mm. Even ultra processed. But it shouldn't be a, a warning or anything that some people are pushing for. No. We should be allowing people to make choices because, like I've mentioned, people that are on lower incomes, it's more all they can afford. And a lot of people, they're having a pretty tough time anyway, but being told that what they're eating is going to kill them just isn't very helpful to people that mm-hmm. have already got some challenges. Yeah. And I'm aware of my own bias and privileged self and the way I'm talking there even sounds quite yeah. insensitive. No, but it's so true. And I think it's one thing being aware of it, but I think as consumers, food, like you say, it's more than the numbers, more than the categories. And I think for academia, like you mentioned, categories may work, but for consumers... It doesn't work. And mm. then I think taking this kind of word ultra process and kind of leading it on to my next question, which is kind of linked to the Messiah syndrome and influences, like I think these like big hot topic words are like keywords get thrown around and then misinterpreted and then people kind of take them and use them in ways that are just wrong. And I I think that yeah, for academia purposes it works, but for consumers I just don't think it's very helpful and actually really interesting in terms of like the whole kind of um, lower income and ultra process. I think it's a bit of a catch 22 as well, because the more that they can't afford, the more they demand the ultra process, but then the more the ultra process is available, the more the con- they consume it. So it's mm. a bit of a like yeah. catch 22 there, but leading on to the next part, which is like the Messiah syndrome and influences. Can you explain a bit about firstly, like what the Messiah syndrome is? Because um, I read your um, Substack on this, and it was really interesting. And I think it'd be quite, yeah. Firstly, can you just define what the Messiah syndrome is? Okay, so you mentioned my Substack. Thank you. If people want to read more about my sort of ideas in nutrition, I do put a bit of science in there. But I'm trying to be a bit more food philosophical. Mm. I don't know whether I'm. No, it's great. Really. So I've got. By the time this podcast's gone out, I should have uh, an article on on called 
unprocessing the ultra process mindset, which is which should succinctly in four thousand words um, say what broadly what I've said now to anyone yeah. wants to read that. But you're referring to my article that I wrote last month, Messiah Syndrome and Nutrition. Yeah. Where I've been, I'm very cautious of some of the misinformation that goes out there, um, as are a lot of credible nutritionists and academics. Um, now, a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of my nutritionist friends, and I was having a rant. <clears throat> excuse me, about the misinformation. I was, I was having a rant about the misinformation out there on, on pseudo-influencers uh, on social media. And she said, yeah, I agree with you, James, but that's kind of on us. We don't do it. So I gave it some thought. And, you know, as from a few months ago, I'm, I'm able to, I've got a really good team at Huel and I can now do focus a little bit more on the nutrition communication side of things and try and get some ideas out there a bit more so I've been able to focus a bit more on writing mm. um, and also on the social media talking into the camera sort of thing which yeah the, the writing's going well that, that sort of thing is, is, is hard work and got a, a couple of people behind me helping me with that now with the, the editing and stuff mm. but if anyone does want to check out some of my thoughts I'm, I'm trying to push that a bit more but the the I'm trying to do that to counter some of these ultra crepidarians. Now that's a word that I think is quite a useful word because it's people that talk about uh, that they come try to be experts in a field that's not their that's not their area of expertise. Yeah. See, a lot of personal trainers are doing this. We might be real good gym bros, right? But when it comes to nutrition, there's just complete misinformation out there. Yeah. Um, I wrote this um, this article, Messiah Syndrome in Nutrition, and I refer to a character in there called Mr. M. That's my term for him because I'm choosing not to name who he is. Fine. For good reasons. But it he concerns me, this guy. I'm doing it, I'm not naming the reasons that are in the article. Fine. Because um, I don't want to end up in an online spat. Yeah. Uh, and now others have done that, some other very credible um, nutritionist, a guy called Dr. Ids, who's a brilliant. Go and follow him on social media, folks. Okay. Um, we... The doctor, he comes out, he picks apart these ultra-crepidarians and the misinformation on there and um, he's, he's very credible and you'll learn a lot from this guy mm. and there's a bunch of others like Dr. Eads who are doing doing this they're picking apart these guys but Eads picked apart the guy I'm referred to as Mr. M and um, they, there was, he got counter-criticised quite a lot and quite very misrepresented and I don't want that and no. I don't think it's going to be useful for me to do that mm. so people like Eads have and others have accused this guy and others saying they've got financial motives behind why they do what they do mm -hmm. i'm not so sure i agree okay i think there's something else going on with these ultra crepidarians i think the reason why they they go out there and do what they're doing is they like uh, they're narcissists they like the attention and if you watch this guy why I, and i a messiah complex is, is the term that i'm referring to in the article mm. because he thinks he's a messiah and genuinely in one video he goes I'm helping people, I'm healing people, I'm educating people. He genuinely believes, I, I think I'm absolutely convinced this guy's coming from a good place. Mm. He genuinely believes what he's doing is a good thing. And you might say, well, I've watched him, if you knew who he was, I've watched him and some of the meals he cooks, they're really healthy meals. Absolutely. Mm. Some, and they look really tasty as well. Yeah. And um, some of the tips he's giving of people to eat, he's only recommending nutritious foods. What's your problem, James? It's how he's doing it. He demonizes other food. He, he claims that the food industry and the supplement industry are lying to you. 
Like there's a big cabal of people that come together on the third Wednesday of every month and try to see how they see how they can deceive the British public and take your money and ruin your health so they can control you. I mean, I'm I'm getting carried away a bit there, but that's the underlying feeling I get when I watch this guy. But Mm. and the other thing that worries me is he is his his growth is you know social media following is getting massive now. There are other people. I'm just using an example. There are certain people who follow the carnivore diet, certain people who follow the vegan regime, they're exactly the same. Mm. Wherever you are on the nutrition spectrum, for want of a better term, I'm seeing this sort of behaviour. But this guy, he's, he's a prime example of it. And yes, he, I'm sure he is making money out of his social media presence. And, mm. But I don't think that's what drives him. I'm no. convinced it isn't. It's probably the feedback he's getting that drives him. Yes, it is. And that's what's even more worrying is that everyone's like, thank you so much. Like, yeah. this is so insightful. I've learned yeah. so much today. This has really helped me. And you're like, oh God, like they're believing every word that comes out of his mouth. And maybe yeah. all of these words aren't necessarily true or, or well backed up. Yeah. And I so get the frustration because for someone like yourself, who's got so much knowledge and so much experience in the industry and all of your statements and facts are so backed up. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating because you're like, well, I've got so much information to give. You're here chatting some truths and some not so truths. And everyone's like taking it as like mm-hmm. the Bible. And you're like, this is actually really, really frustrating. Mm-hmm. So again, how do we, how do we as consumers go about distinguishing whether these people online are saying things that are right or wrong. I guess my first answer to that would be maybe do your own research or listen to lots of different people, not just one person. But what would you suggest? That's probably the best tip you've got there. Mm. Unfortunately, I think the people listening into your podcast, Georgia, are going to be more the people that don't listen to those sort of people. Mm. They're going to be more likely to people that listen. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> they're probably more listen to people like Dr. Ritz. Yeah. And some of the other very credible, Rihanna Lambert, for instance, I think she's really yeah. good to follow. Um, and Nicola London Rain as well. She's yeah. another really good one to follow. Mm. People, they'll be following the likes of these people. Um, yeah. And maybe even me. Yeah. One of the five followers I've got. And it's, um, <laughs> they, you know, so they probably don't need converting. But what you've said, listen to a lot of people. And if mm. you find it confusing, okay, who seems credible? Cred- who seems credible out of that? Well, here's a few tips to, to discern who's likely yeah. giving you good advice. Now, if the individual talks in absolutes, they'll, they'll say that if you eat this, you will die, or you, <laughs> you will, you will, this will happen, or, yeah. or, or otherwise, have this product and it will improve your health a thousand times, or something like that. Speaking in absolutes. They're very likely not very credible. Mm. A, a good scientist will talk a lot of nuance. They'll say, hey, you should probably try to cut down a little bit of this, folks. You know, maybe have a bit more of this over here. And they'll be talking like that, very nuanced, very non-black and white, accepting the complexity mm. of the food system. Yeah. And um, that's that's the first watch out. Secondly, do they demonize any particular food ingredient or food groups? So will they be saying, don't ever have ultra-processed food? Which is why it was important that I didn't misrepresent that other bunch of communicators yeah. who do not fall into this category at all. Mm. Um, people like Tim Spector and Chris Van Tilligan, I want to emphasize that. They are not this. Mm. Mm. They're, they're, um, you know, they, they give some really, really useful advice. Um, I, you, yeah, so if, if they, they're demonizing certain foods, then they're very likely not, not, 
someone you should be listening to. Yeah. The other one is they'll say the word fact after everything. Oh, this, if you have this, this is, you know, if you do this thing, it'll help, help you. Fact. Or so true. And that's, you know, nothing's factual. Or they'll say um, they are lying to you. They'll say this big cabal of, you know, people who are giving you information. And this is the, the point I was making in the, the Messiah Syndrome article that Mr. M, he claims that... Um, that people are trying to get him off social media because they don't like what he's saying because he's ruining their you know, their livelihood. No, the reason why they're trying to get him off social media and doing what he's saying is because they're concerned about his, his bad information. But that doesn't dawn on him because all he thinks is he's giving good information. Mm. So it's the way they talk, the way they communicate. If they're, too, you know, they're very not like to be credible. And the other one, and this is the one I'm on the fence about, They'll, they'll say the truth about such and such. Now, unfortunately, social media is set up at the moment that even people like me will have to use that as clickbait. Yeah. Because it's the only way it works if you put the truth about something. So these people, these ultra crepidarians might say something like the truth about this food and then go on to slag it off. Yeah. The more credible ones who are using the truth about something in the, in the tagline, in the, in the clickbait... I think it's a shame they have to do that, but it's what pulls people in. Mm. But then they should be going on to be a bit more nuanced in what they say afterwards. Yeah. That's the difference. So there's a few watch outs there, but I don't, I'm all, I think I'm already talking to the converted here when you're... Yeah, but it's in. really good points, actually. And also, there's two things I want to say on that. Firstly, it's crazy that they speak so black and white when everyone is so different. And it's like if you eat this, you'll die, for example. Mm. It's like, well, how can you tell that? Because everyone's so, so, so different. Like yeah. everyone's diet's different, everyone's body's different. So how can you tell your mass audience that if they eat this one thing, they will die or whatever? Like yeah. that's actually quite crazy. And secondly, my other point on this is, do you personally struggle to communicate online when influencers or pseudo-influencers or some others are starting are saying things which are very clickbait and the internet kind of pulls up on these hotlines or these tags on these big mm. words and people respond well to them when you're saying something which is a bit more factual but more balanced do you find it's harder to kind of get the message across to people I am. I think that's why I'm, I'm struggling with my social media following. Mm. And that's the whole thing, the very fact I'm saying that seems so disingenuous, right? I, I don't want to be going out there chasing social media followers, but I am absolutely going out there chasing social media yeah. followers. Because if I genuinely feel I've got a good message that I want people to share, then I, feel I want to do that. But I'm, that, how does that make me any different to Mr. M? Because yeah. it's not what he wants to do, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, how do you communicate to the masses mm. when it's... It's like, are you trying to communicate to get the likes or are you trying to communicate to get the message across? And actually, when you can do both, that's really, that's an art and it's great. And then when you get, when you get the method, you can like replicate it, but it's actually really, really difficult. And it is crazy that we're even having the conversation about how to communicate to the masses because ultimately the aim is to communicate the message across, but you want to speak to a large portion of people. So to do that, you've got to think about how to get it across how to present it how to and it is yeah it is a challenge and I I completely get that mm -hmm. which kind of leads me on to your book which mm -hmm. is exciting but I feel like you've got a story to share about how you've managed all the journey you've had to getting it published or 
the journey you've had to maybe not so getting it published. Can you share a bit about that? So I, I think I might have alluded to the fact there's a book coming out last year. Yeah. Yeah. That was optimistic, wasn't it? In, in lockdown, broadly speaking, in lo- early lockdown, like everyone did, we got a bit bored. I started writing a few essays about my own dietary strategy, um, which I think I might have broadly covered in the last podcast. Mm. Um, and I thought, there's a book here to back up my rationale behind it. So I wrote, you know, I started putting together a book um, and I kind of finished it last July, so July a year and a bit ago. Yeah. July twenty. 20- 22 and I thought right now I'll go and find a publisher <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> so I thought no go go and get a publisher uh, and I thought that'd be quite easy I thought I'd done the hard bit oh no how wrong was I the easy bit is writing and researching a book you know I know because I know what I'm doing yeah it might be time consuming it might be hard work with reading all those studies and referencing them and everything like that but it's the only in complete control of it yeah going out into this world I know nothing about the publishing world so me and my naivety, I just started emailing a load of people, I put together a book proposal, had it professionally proofread by a guy, that, the same guy that proofreads all my articles, um, uh, Nick Jones from Full Proof Media, give him a shout out. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he reviewed it and said it was great and other people have looked at it and I've sent it out and I did get a couple of people, a couple of um, Zoom calls with a couple of potential publishers and they, were, they didn't come to anything, but great. Mm-hmm. But out of about 40, I had two calls. Right, and I was wow. Like, I was agent, there was out of agents and potential publishers. I wanted the agent, really, mm. but I couldn't get a hook. So eventually, I managed to get what's called a hybrid deal, which made sense because this was over a year ago. I'm, a, I'm not, a, not an author. It's expensive to publish a book, and I've read that about one, one in four succeeds. And quite often publishers make a loss on those other three. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what mm. I've read. So I get it. You, you pay some of the upfront costs. And I went with a company who I won't name for legal reasons. Um, and I, oh, it was awful. It was an awful experience. They, they, would have do, they designed the book cover within a few weeks. You know, so I cover, I put together, put together a few I, um, ideas of what I thought might be in the cover. And obviously the book's covers... Um, Nutrition for health, um, sustainable nutrition in the environment, and also covers ethical food choices. So mm. I put animal welfare. So I put animal welfare in my ideas for the designer, and I got back a book with a picture of it was it, it was crap, but at least it had pictures of food on it and something that could represent sustainability. Had a t- picture of a dog in a Santa outfit on the front. You're kidding? I'm not <laughs> kidding and. It's, in, it's insulting in a way. It's insulting. I mean, it's a. It's called thought for food. I mean, can everyone see what's wrong there? That's. I know. Anyway, I thought. Well, this was early stages. I was still excited. This was. This was. They, they turned that around pretty quickly. I went straight back to them and said it doesn't work, and they corrected it into something equally as crap, but at least at least worked, right? Yeah. Wouldn't have sold a book. No. A couple of other iterations, rubbish. Sent it to my mate. My mate designed it for me. I sent his design back to them, and they copied it right. Fine. Fixed. Yeah. Then I got the first, you have to wait three months and then got the, the proof through. Some of the suggestions on the grammar would fail GCSE English. They were putting superfluous commas, paragraphs in one place is okay. You could, you could argue about whether they're on. They were objectively bad grammar. There's no, this is a matter of opinion. This yeah. is some of the 
you know, the Oxford comma, for instance, some people use, some people don't. This was comma where there shouldn't be them. And they were, if I'd say, like I've mentioned Michael Pollan's in defense of food. The Americans spell defense with an S, we spell it with a C, right? Yeah. Here. So I quoted it as an, as an S, clearly as is bought, and they would correct that sort of thing, which is just you don't do because the book is spelled with the American way because it's an American author, right? Yeah. So these are schoolboy stuff. And anyway, so I, I wrote them a snotty after, give them a chance to fix it. I just went through. And I tried, and I suggested they they fit they fix these things, and then they acknowledged, and then six eight weeks later I got it back, and they'd not done anything. So at that point, I, my toys were thrown far from my pram, yeah. and uh, I wrote them a snotty letter asking for my to fix this in two weeks or my money back. Yeah. Two weeks went by, no fixed. change. So then I asked for my back and got blank. So okay. So then I went to this, my solicitor. And they got in touch, sent them. Oh, and then they were emailing me and on the phone trying to get settle this, just saying from the senior manager saying, we will personally look after you. We will personally make sure. Too late. Yeah. Because if they failed on the book cover and they failed on the proofreading, it's... let's say they rec- I'm 100% confident they'd have fixed the proofing. 100%. What would have happened with them? Would they have got in the right stores for me? Yeah. Would, what would, the, would the quality of the print look shit? No way. I want out. So the solicitor did a brilliant job got me out of the contract and um, uh, I got half my money back. You know, I'm, how many other, you know, I'm in an okay financial position, right? Yeah. I can afford to do that. How many other people would, how many other authors, potential authors would have their souls ripped out of them because of this? They needed to me, they needed a punch in the face. But this is crazy. You can't even, you've written a book which, doesn't happen overnight as it is with all this information and now you can't even get it published by a credible pa- like that's mad it is and i and i've probably done a lot wrong so this company were definitely not good and you know i should say that nick jones i just mentioned for full proof after yeah. i'd already signed the contract and i mentioned to him in passing i've got this he sent me some warning slides from them it was um, too late fine then. um so they do have a bad reputation you know okay um, but you know, incidentally i showed nick some of them some of the stuff they wanted to suggest, and he was just shocked. Wow. Uh, um, so have you gone to any other I've publishers since? Was only, I've only got out the contract like three or four weeks ago. Fine. Um, so I'm just pausing. Obviously, I want to redo the chapter 11, which is the one that covers food science or food processing. Because yeah. Because I feel the world's moved on. I'm not mentioning Van Tulliger's book, so I'm re-tweaking that. Okay, one. interesting, yeah. And then I've, I've shown all, my um, proposal to a few people and whilst the synopsis of the book is probably bang on perfect mm. length and well done I've only got like one page at the end of how I'll help market it okay and I've been told look I should probably try and spoon feed them more like this is what I can do and be all over the marketing and of course I should I'm yeah in the industry. I know this schoolboy at well but it's so, first it's first time of doing yeah. it so it's exactly yeah so I'm off on holiday next month for a couple of three weeks so I'm pausing on this now. Then I'm going to redo the book proposal. I've got someone who's going to professionally look look at it for me. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. You know, I I'm not against the hybrid thing. I think from what I've read, the hybrid web publishing can work very well. But I'm not doing it again. No, no. But like I said to the company when I <clears throat> sorry, like I said to the company when I complained, I quoted, "I would rather have this book never published than have it published with you." Yeah, because there is no way I would do that. No, you know. Um, so seems a lucky escape. I really. don't tell you what. So I'm, 
I have started writing book number two, which is about calorie counting. Amazing. Um, but I'm pausing that at the moment, so I'm focusing more on the substack because at least I can get stuff out there for short-term wins. Okay. Yeah. And the massage syndrome, by the way, like 1.2, um, 1,200 people read that. Yeah. Which, is, which isn't too bad because people don't read as much as they watch videos. No, it's true. So, right? But it is crazy. Like this whole kind of episode has really been about trying to get the right information out there. And it is so interesting how, you know, if writing is your thing, then, and we're now in video world, that's really challenging. And, you know, you've written a book and then, even publishers are challenging like it's a real challenge it's, it is and the book might be shit i just want one of the publishers to look at it and tell me it's shit then that yeah. would, i would be grateful for that yeah the, the two of them that i did have a call with one of them especially was so lovely she wanted to run with it but her colleagues were a bit cautious because it was a high risk because i'm not well known and Fine. they did more of the recipe type books than the oh, food, okay. food, theory, food theory popular science so of course and, and she sent me a lovely email back so super grateful you know, mm-hmm. to that. and the other one just wasn't for them and ultimately anyway which is which is fine yeah you know, that's great at least at least i had interaction yeah but nobody said this is not good enough no and i've had a lot of you know third parties looking for both in nutrition and non-nutrition mm. and they both think there's something there so all i want is a publisher to tell me this is just not it's a rubbish book and then i'm happy well yeah that sound weird but then i'd know but yeah but uh, uh, clearly it's it's not because you've got you've got so many people looking at it it's just maybe yeah, it's not fallen into the yeah. right hands but but the, the main reason i write is because yes i want my information to get out there but as we know people don't read as much but the way the reason i write is and, and publish stuff on, on substack and other platforms is that writing forms my ideas. It helps me, me, me form it. I have these ideas bubbling up there and I can't say them. I, I would not have been able to say what I said today about the ultra-processed food if I hadn't have written that article or written stuff about processed food before. Because, yes, it's all very well reading and thinking about things. That's brilliant. And that's part of my, my learning process. And you could say, well, can't you just go and write a load of notes on it, James? Because we all know that writing helps things go in the brain quite quickly. Yeah. And that would help as well. But writing it and structuring sentences in a way that you commit to publishing it, knowing that you're going to be opening yourself up to criticism, forces you to be absolutely on point. Yeah. Or at least opens up the way you're not on point, means it's going to be very hard to criticise. And if people do criticise you, they're probably going to be right. Mm. So you're going to learn from it. So that's why I do this. And also, nutrition, any other sciences, can be piss-boring to read, right? Mm. So if you can try and put a narrative behind it and use some anecdotes and some metaphors and some analogies and a bit of a narrative running through it yeah making your point that's what i try that's fun yeah and it frames it well and also i guess it makes it more balanced because you are getting that feedback from different people so you're having a more balanced argument Mm. in your head yeah so it makes sense but this has been so insightful because i feel like often we just get the results that we see we just get people's information but it's really interesting to see the other side of it and how it is challenging on getting the right information out there and it's challenging for consumers of this information to know what's right and what's wrong. So it's been really insightful to get this and I think there is definitely a book coming at some point. It's yeah, well, just... I think what this guy that looked at my um, proposal and pointed out that I've not done much to market them, he's mm. going to be the guy that's going to help me. Um, yeah. We're going we're to look at that in December and... That gives me time to rewrite this chapter 11 anyway. Yeah. And then we can, um, I'll go out there again with a new proposal and re resell it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's exciting. And yeah. that is, yeah, we'll definitely watch out for that. Yeah. Well, we have a last question as always, which is again, what is your last meal going to be? So starter, main course and dessert. Can't remember what you said last time, 
But yeah, what was your last meal? Yule. No. <laughs> um, could be. Could be. It'd be quick and easy to get over and done with. Yeah. Um, my last meal, well, assuming that the reason for it being my last meal, you can have not whatever. That I've lost any, you know, I've got some cachectic disease that I've lost my taste. Yeah, appetite. that's very true. Assuming that I've still got just as ravenous appetite and the same organoleptic um, sensations <laughs> as before, then it would be starter. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't want to ruin ruin the. If I was going to have fish and chips, I just want to have a massive plate of fish and chips. You could. Just because otherwise, if I had started, it would ruin the, it would ruin the yeah. meal a little bit. So maybe it's just one, one maybe course. And a, yeah, and maybe a bar of chocolate afterwards. What what brand is your go-to? Well, I go for Tony's now because yeah. I like, we've, we've got the, uh, here we've got the partnership on the cocoa, the, the open chain thing. So yeah. we're, we're sourcing primarily through them, but it means we can jump on the back of them and help source cocoa ethically. And Amazing. I think it's brilliant what they're doing. Yeah. And... You know, I hadn't really heard of Tony's a year ago. Yeah. That would be my go-to brand. And And their chocolate is amazing. It's really nice as well, right? Yeah. But, you know, that would would be my choice. Yeah. And if you had to have a last Huel, which one would it be? Oh, that would be, I would have the chicken and mushroom hot and savoury washed down with banana RTD. Love it. Love it. Love it. James, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Always so insightful. This is a really good episode to like, as we mentioned earlier, have a look at the other side of things. It is hard to cut through the noise. There is so much out there. We are literally drowning in content, in, in facts and information, like it's going on your phone. You can see so much, hear so much, read so much, but what, what of that is true? What is false? What is misinterpreted? It is really confusing sometimes. So this was really interesting to kind of clarify some of that. So thank you so much. It is. It's really hard for people to discern what's what's true and what's not true. So people can always get in touch with me um, mm. uh, if, through any social media channels. They can watch my video content. They might find that it's quite useful for them. Yeah. Um, on all major social channels. Amazing. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me again, Georgia. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. I would love for you guys to do me a favour which will literally take you 30 seconds. Whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or any other platform, please can you rate the podcast and leave a review. It really does make the world of difference for us to get seen by other listeners and make us stand out from the crowd. Honestly, it will take 30 seconds and mean the world. Thank you so much again and see you next week. (laughs) 